great to see all of you here today. Looking forward to our time together in God's Word. I'll talk to you a little bit about road rage. One of the many reasons why people become angry out on the road is because of people who text while they're driving. I have some good advice for such people from Eric Peters who wrote a book called Driving Etiquette. He says, and I quote, if you need to make an important call, read a map or put creamer in your coffee, pull over and do it by the side of the road. After all, you only have two hands and one brain. (laughs) But in a seven-year study of road rage, there come these interesting statistics. The most, most common month for road rage is September. The most frequent day of the week for road rage activity is Tuesday. The typical time of day, you might guess, is in the evening at 545 And the average road rage person is a man aged 35 to 50 driving a BMW. (laughs) But the saddest road rage fact from that seven-year study is that during that seven-year period, over 200 people were murdered in a road rage incident. Over 200 people. I want to talk today about anger and about murder. Again, our text is Matthew 5, beginning at verse 21. Jesus is preaching here. This is His sermon. And He says in verse 21 to His disciples and the crowd gathered on that hillside, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whosoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. My friends, I'm sorry, make friends. They are his friends too. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. I want to talk first of all this morning from this key passage about the fact that our emotions, especially these negative emotions of anger and frustration, are best left under God's control. Jesus takes this part of his Sermon on the Mount and turns it to the subject of the differences for those living the God life compared to those living the good life. We've already talked about the thrill of living the good life, of walking with the Lord, of saying to God, I need you, I can't do this on my own. 
And then we've talked about the impact of the good life. Being like salt in the world, preserving the truth of God. And about being light in the world, shining into the darkest corners. And then we talked also about the core of the God life. The fact that our life as believers in Jesus Christ has to be based on the authoritative Word of God. And now we come to this part of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus begins to look at some of the specific commands of Scripture. But He does them in a unique way. A way all His own. Because He is God in the flesh. He selects this part of the sermon to really focus on the difference of a person living the God life. And one of the differences of a person living the God life compared to a person trying to live what they would call the good life is that the believer in Jesus Christ has for himself the goal of controlling his anger. Keeping himself under control and not thinking ill of others. For no reason at all. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the rabbis or teachers, they all thought that they were living a good life. They were certain of it. And as Jesus now talks in this section from verse 21 through the end of the chapter about six different categories of uh, themes or subjects that we could consider that the Jews of his day could consider. Some of those Jewish leaders were saying, in effect, I never murdered anyone, so I must be okay with God. I never committed adultery. I must be good. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He is saying, in effect, that's not what makes you righteous. Look at the end of verse 20 once again where we ended last time, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So their righteousness wasn't enough. Why? Because it was self-righteousness. So they looked at these commands and said, I'm doing all these things. I'm obeying all these commands. But Jesus wants them to know there's the spirit of the law Behind the letter of the law. And the spirit of the law is what is important. So he selects one of the Ten Commandments. Anyone know which one? Which of the ten? Alright, I'll tell you the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And here he emphasizes that the spirit of the law is way beyond the specific words, you shall not murder. Rather, the intent of the law is, don't be angry with your brother. Don't raise your voice and call him names. Don't treat him that way. And that's how God intended all of His laws to be understood. Jesus here refers to the ancients in verse 21. He's talking here about those who originally received the law back in Moses' day. Those people then, and hopefully still, realized that murder is a violation of the very character of God. The reason we shouldn't kill someone is because God made them. 
The reason we shouldn't be angry with a brother is because God loves him, loves her. Murder is a violation of the character of God since He is the Creator of man. Genesis 9.6 This is after Noah's flood. It says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God He made man. By the way, I believe that that principle is still current today. I believe in capital punishment. That's a whole other subject. I'll say more about capital punishment in a moment. But as the Jewish leaders taught the law, as they gave their oral traditions, as those oral traditions began to be put down in writing in the Mishnah and the Talmud, they didn't go far enough. Notice again verse 21. You heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And then notice this part. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Well, it's good to have courts deal with things like murder. But that doesn't go far enough. And there was the problem. Jesus was saying your Jewish leaders aren't telling you the spirit of the law. They're only giving the letter of the law. And the letter of the law says if you commit murder, you're going to be dragged in before the court and you'll end up losing your life. But they leave God out of it. Did you see that? It doesn't say because God created man in His image. God is left out of it. It's just the courts dealing with it. And Jesus is saying that's not enough. That's not enough. When he refers to the courts here, he's probably talking about local courts. That could lead all the way to the Supreme Court of Israel, the Sanhedrin. But it starts with the local courts in the various towns. So the intent of the Sixth Commandment was wiped away because the focus was not on God's holiness and justice. It was on the action of men in a courtroom. So God was left out. Too often we get hung up on a definition of murder. And some people read what Jesus says here and they go back again to this debate about, well, what really constitutes murder? Does it apply to killing someone during a wartime if I'm a soldier? Is that murder? What about uh, protecting my or my family from imminent danger? Can I take someone else's life if they're breaking into my home and they want to kill me or my wife or my children? What about mercy killing? We understand that premeditated murder is serious. But what about capital punishment? Should courts in any given land like the United States have the right to take someone's life who has taken someone else's life? Those are all questions that come into view. But I want to go back to this matter of defending my righteousness, self-righteousness, by claiming I've never murdered anyone. The God life is lived in the opposite path to that. 
The God life says, I want God's righteousness. I want to live in light of His control. I want Him to direct my attitudes and my thoughts. I want Him to keep my mind clear from hateful things. And so personal righteousness is lived out daily by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He fills us with God's character. He replaces our sinful tendencies with the fruit that only the Holy Spirit can produce in us. Listen to this well-known passage in Galatians 5. Starting in verse 19, Paul says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, and then he gives this list, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. But Paul says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, And then these wonderful words, against such things there is no law. You don't have to be dragged into court if you love people. You don't have to be uh, taken before the Supreme Court if you're gentle. So the key practical difference between the person living the God life and someone living just for themselves is that we give God the space to fill our lives with His character to control our minds, our thoughts, our attitudes with godly character so that we need to only live by the law of love. So that we only need to desire that God would get all the glory for what happens in our lives as we react to people around us. If He's taking up the space in my life that used to be filled with self-righteousness or with my own sinful activities, then I'm going to desire to call upon His name rather than calling people unkind names. That's where Jesus goes next in this sermon. Look with me at verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. I was going to show a little picture of a, a little boy, a real small little boy, shaking his fist in anger at someone. But I want to start this second point by making it clear that not all anger is bad. Very important to remember that. Ephesians 4.26 Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. There is a kind of righteous anger that is God-honoring. Jesus exhibited that kind of anger when He drove the money changers out of the temple. And He didn't just drive them out saying, Come on guys, get out. He fashioned a whip and forced them out of the temple area and said, My house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. 
righteous anger. I'm absolutely convinced that we need some righteous anger today. For a number of decades, there's been an organization out there called MADD, M-A-D-D, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. They do a great work. That's the right kind of anger. I thought about a couple other organizations that we could go uh, with, like FAR, F-A-R, Fathers Against Rape, or TAP, T-A-P, Teens Against Pornography. Those aren't real organizations as far as I know, but the point is we need that kind of righteous anger toward things going on in our society and in our world today. But there are wrong kinds of anger, to be sure. And that's what this passage is about. Gloria the other day gave me a real small little book written by June Hunt called Anger Facing the Fire Within. And in it she describes four kinds of anger. Prolonged anger, what she calls the simmering stew, Pressed down anger, she calls that the pressure cooker. Provoked anger, that's the short fuse. And then profuse anger, the volatile volcano. Jesus is talking here about the person who, whose anger is out of control. Not under the control of the Holy Spirit. Not righteous anger, but anger that's out of control and directed at someone that God loves and that God made. He's talking in verse 22 about anger that hurts others. He's talking about anger that harms their character. He's talking about anger that hurls hateful words at someone God has created. According to Jesus, and this is... Jesus now, not Bill Bagley or some other preacher. According to this preacher, Jesus, that kind of anger is as bad as murder. There's no other way to say it than that. That is murder as far as Jesus is concerned. And no one other than Jesus can honestly say, since I haven't murdered anyone, I'm keeping the Sixth Commandment perfectly. No. No. I've gotten angry before, so have you. In one situation or another, I've said things I shouldn't say. I've uh, reacted in a way that was displeasing to God, and so have you. Jesus gives two examples here of anger killing, as I call it. And we do well to consider these two examples, just like the disciples and the crowd in that day had to consider them. First, Jesus mentions calling your brother Raka in many translations. The word Raka is really an almost untranslatable word. Here in our text, um, we have simply the word Raka printed, but it has the idea of you good for nothing. We might say in today's paraphrase, you stupid idiot. Or... You knucklehead. It's that kind of word, but there's more to it than trying to define the word or come up with a meaning for the word. The word itself is, some of you will remember this from high school English class, is an onomatopoetic word. 
That means it sounds like what it is. It sounds like somebody clearing their throat. They're clearing their throat because they're getting some saliva stored up there, ready to spit at that person whom they detest. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Not so much saying you're an idiot as wanting out of a heart of hate to spit at that person. Get away from me. I don't want you around me. That's what he's talking about here. So we need to be careful. If we have no good thought about someone else, we need to be careful just to keep our mouth shut. No saliva to spew at them. No harsh words to send their way. The second example is calling someone a fool. The word certainly does not mean someone who is not very smart or demonstrates a low IQ. The Bible mentions the fool in Psalm 14 verse 1, for example. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, God says. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. This person may have a very high level of intelligence, but they have a heart that turns away from God. They're not going to love God. They're not even going to admit there is a God. And instead, they live an immoral lifestyle out of a heart that says, I don't need God, I don't need His standards, I don't need His rules and laws. I'll do my own thing. But please remember Psalm 14.1, God is calling such a person a fool. If I use that term of some other person, if I call someone a fool, what I mean by that is, I think that that person has low moral character. I'm attacking their morality. I'm defaming and slandering them before others. And Jesus says that is just like murder. 1 John 3.15 says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Those are strong words, but they come from God. The Apostle John, who wrote those words, was led by the Holy Spirit to write those exact words. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. So whether we're calling someone raka or we're calling someone a fool, in either case there is serious punishment for the person who throws around those hurtful words. In this case, either the Jewish Supreme Court or in the final end, the fire of hell. I want to talk just for a second about that word translated hell here in our context. It's the Hebrew word Gehenna. It takes us back in history to Second Chronicles 28 where King Ahaz, who was an Israeli king, decided that it was time to introduce the worship of Molech to the people of Israel. And in the worship of Molech, he was encouraging, and by by his own example doing this, he was giving children to be burned in the fire. Jewish children 
where that took place was just outside the city of Jerusalem in what's called the Valley of Hinnom, which is where the word Gehenna comes from. Eventually that became the garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem. In Jesus' day, that's exactly what it was. They would take all the city's garbage and throw it out there like our landfill here in Franklin County, except everything would be burned. And the fire just kept burning and burning and burning. It never went out. It was used as a picture of a place of torment for Christ rejectors. Hell. The Bible describes hell as the place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Now please know, Jesus is not saying here that because you are angry with your brother or because you say hateful words that you're going to go to hell. A Christian will not end up in hell. A true believer isn't going to hell. Hell is for Christ rejectors. What he does mean is that behind the sin of murder is an attitude. That's what he's talking about here. And he's illustrating it in the most extreme way possible. So he does mean also that our words are powerful in their ability to damage the character of another person. How much better is it to speak words of grace to those around us? We've all no doubt heard or used the expression, especially when we were kids, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, or words will never hurt me. How many of you know that's not true? Words are very hurtful. In fact, you can heal from the damage from a stick to the head or a stone thrown at you from a distance. You can heal from that. But many people live their whole lives struggling with the uh, damage done by words. Spiteful words. Painful words. It affects the way we view ourselves. It affects even the way we see, the way we view how God sees us. So whether I've used such words or someone has injured me with them, the question thirdly this morning is, what do I do? And the answer is, reconcile. Make restitution. Get it straightened out. Doing so, Jesus says, is better than worship in that instance. Jesus summarizes the practical side of this subject, specifically how to deal with hurt and anger. And he uses the word therefore in verse 23. If therefore you are presenting your gift. He's talking here, first of all, he gives two illustrations. First of all, he's talking here about the person who is going to the Jewish priest to offer a sacrifice to God. He's going to make sacrifice for his sins. So he's bringing his lamb with him. He's taking it to the temple. He's going to lay his hands on the head of that animal, representing symbolically that he's transferring his sin to that animal. That animal is then going to be taken by the priest and killed and its blood then placed on the uh, altar 
in the Holy of Holies. But Jesus is saying, as you're coming there, as you're bringing your lamb, you're getting ready to go through this process of sacrificing for sin. There you remember that your brother has something against you. Just leave it all there. Go your way. Make things right. Then, notice, then come and present your offering. First be reconciled, then come and present your offering. The point of both of the illustrations that we're going to look at is do it now. Don't let that spiteful relationship go on between you. Do it now. That means more to God than your act of worship. 1 Samuel 15 verse 22 says, To obey is better than sacrifice. So if we do what God says in regard to this relationship problem, that's better than coming and worshiping. That's better than coming and presenting a sacrifice. It means more to God. If I'm going to let that uh, bad relationship stand in the way of me and my brother, then my worship is going to be faint. My worship is going to be second class. My worship is going to be something that will not please the heart of God. The second example that he gives in verses 25 and 26 was a common occurrence in first century Israel. We don't have debtor's prisons anymore. But in those days they did. And throwing someone in a debtor's prison was a way of dealing with past due notices. I want to see a a raise of hands if you have ever in your life gotten a past due notice in the mail. Anybody? Quite a few of us. Well, be thankful that uh, we don't live in a society where they put you in jail for past due notices. But in those days, that could happen. If it went on too long, your neighbor that you owed money to could come and do what's called a summary arrest or a citizen's arrest. He could take you by the, the nap of the neck or by the arm and walk you down to the court give the details of the case, and you would be put in jail. And Jesus says in the end of verse 26, interestingly, you'll be there until you've paid the last cent. Well, guess what? In those days, jails did not give jobs to inmates. Some of our jails today, you can earn a little bit of money, not much, but a little bit doing jobs in the prison. Not then. So how did you get your debt paid? A family member or a friend had to come and stand in your place. Someone from the outside had to pay your debt. What a beautiful illustration of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He came to pay a debt he did not owe. We owed the debt, right? The debt of sin. But he paid that debt in full on Calvary's cross. Again, the issue here is make things right with your opponent now. 
Do it now. Don't wait. The only way I'm going to love my brothers and sisters and put an end to this matter of being angry toward them or saying hurtful things toward them is to let the Holy Spirit so control me, so fill me, that He alone controls my one brain and my one tongue. I'm sure you know that the Bible has quite a bit to say about the help or the damage of this one tongue. Listen to James chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. James writes, No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, notice, who have been made in the likeness of God. There's that same theme again. Why shouldn't we be angry with our brother? Why shouldn't we say hurtful things to our sister? Because God made them. And God loves them. Much more than we ever could. So what's the answer to this battle of the tongue? To this issue of anger? We read it earlier in our scripture reading. James 1.19 Let everyone be three things. Quick to hear. Slow to speak. And slow to anger. Those three simple steps will protect us from murder. It will protect our brother or sister from being hurt by our words. Quick to hear. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. We're going to close the service this morning with... uh, a wonderful old hymn that really is a prayer in itself and it will be our closing prayer. Have thine own way, Lord. And that second verse especially says, Fill with thy Spirit till all shall see Christ only, always living in me. If I'm giving God the space to fill up my life with His Holy Spirit, then I'm going to be less likely every single day to lose control of my tongue and to show anger and to demonstrate hatred to act like a murderer. I want to have a stand and sing together this song as our closing prayer this morning. I trust it will be your testimony to the Lord today. Have thine own way.
absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only always lives.